Easter weekend, so we have this whole painting theme going on about the bigger picture. When you think about Easter, the disciples didn't really understand anything Jesus was talking about until after he resurrected. And then after he resurrected, it kind of put this whole thing, all these prophecies talked about that the Son of Man must die, the Son of Man must be buried in the ground, the Son of, all these things came into a bigger light. And so we're going to celebrate through painting. So one, you hear Good Friday, we're having noon to 8 p.m. at Pickett on Court, right there on Court Street, right next to Rosie's. We're having Stations of the Cross. If you don't come from a liturgical background, that may not mean sense to you, but Stations of the Cross is 17 different stations in the last week of Jesus that you pray through. And it's going to be a guided prayer time. It'll end with communion that you can come anytime between noon and 8 p.m. with you and your family that you want to. You can invite friends, family. Our prayers that will be at the intersection of public life where people will just walk in and wonder what we're doing, and they'll walk through the station of the cross and encounter Jesus. Secondly is Easter Sunday. Evan Struck will be here. I was actually preaching in Michigan early this year and afterwards he came up and talked to me. He said, hey, I'm going to be like in Huntsville. How close are you to Huntsville? Because no one knows where Florence, Alabama is outside of Florence, Alabama. And he said, where's Florence? And I said, what's well, about an hour west of there? And he says, well, I'm painting. I do speed painting at the University of Alabama Huntsville. And so we connected, and he's going to be here to help us bring the big picture into focus. It's going to be a powerful, powerful Sunday. So if you can do us a couple favors. One, when you leave, you'll get these invite cards. It has a QR code in the back. If you'll take just a few of those and hand them out to your friends or your family, invite them to join you for Easter Sunday or Good Friday, or you can leave these at gas station pumps. The gas is so high, maybe this will take their attention away from the price of gas. But it's going to be a powerful, powerful Sunday. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter Five is we end the Beatitudes today, and we've talked about it's kind of like a ladder, a crescendo effect that it starts, you know, with humility and pure heart and, and all these things, but it ends today with kind of the persecution of the saints. And I don't know if you realize this, but in our culture today, it may not be persecution that we see overseas, but there is a thing called cancel culture. Look at your say cancel. That means if you don't do what we think you should do, we're going to do everything we can to cancel you, to remove you from the face of the virtual digital world. Even so much that J.K. Rowling got canceled. She wrote Harry Potter books. It's all pretend and imaginary. They canceled Harry Potter because J.K. Rowling said things people didn't like. And so the whole mantra of cancel culture is, if you say something or do something I don't agree with, not only am I going to disagree with you, but I'm going to try to get everybody else to disagree with you and to stop you and prevent you from enjoying life ever again. One person said cancel culture is nothing more than a medieval mob looking for somebody to burn at the stake. I look at it as more of, of thugs with a keyboard. Like they're not tough in real life, but they can, they can talk tough on a keyboard or, or a mob with the mentality of anonymity, which means they can hide behind a computer screen or through Facebook or through Twitter or through Instagram and do things they normally wouldn't do. The whole problem with cancel culture, though, is that it's, it's a mob mentality, it's a herd mentality that at some point the herd turns back. I'll never forget... Years ago, I was at youth camp. I went on this huge youth camp, and the seniors every year would have like a special time of camp. And so we, we did this thing. We're trying to find these waterfalls to jump off of, these cliffs to jump off of. We couldn't find them at this big Land Between the Lakes Park. And so we found this Jurassic Park gate at Land Between the Lakes. So you ever seen Jurassic Park, this huge gate? You paid $5 with a, with a debit card and opened up these gates, and it was wild buffalo. 
He said, let's go in there. So we pulled the church van in, and there's all these buffalo roaming down in this little plane, and one of the kids jumps out. The rest of the kids jump out because kids are stupid. They follow the stupidest kid. That's how teenage life works. And he starts chasing the buffalo. And I was like, you know, I'm not not a country boy, but I, I don't think that's smart, but he starts chasing the buffalo, and he's like yelling and screaming, and ah, and the buffalo start stampeding away from everybody. So you have the stupid kid, then you have the other stupid kids following that stupid kid. They're chasing these buffalo, and the buffalo are just stampeding, while all of a sudden the stampede begins to turn. And as it turns, now the stampede is chasing the stupid boy and the stupid kids, and they're all running towards the church van. They jump in the church van, and the stampede just runs right by the church van. Dust flies everywhere. Well, mob mentality, cancel culture. If you watch, at some point, the herd begins to turn on the herd. And we're beginning to see that in culture, that even no matter what side of the aisle on you, that, that liberals, super progressives, are now starting to get canceled by their own. Why? It's because there's this persecution of belief system that if you don't believe like me, I'm going to crucify you at the stake. Now, in America, that's kind of our persecution, but in, in the world, Open Door USA says a woman in India watches as her sister is dragged off by Hindu nationalists, and she doesn't know if they'll come back alive or dead. A man in North Korea prison camp is shaken awake after being beaten unconscious, only to be beaten again. A woman in Nigeria runs for her life. She escaped the Boko Haram who kidnapped her. She is pregnant, and when she returns home, the community will reject her and her baby. A group of children are laughing and talking as they come down to their church's sanctuary after eating together. Instantly, many of them are killed by a bomb blast on Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka. Like across the world, there's, there's a persecution that arises that's, that's greater than just cancel culture. And so in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus says this, here's what he says. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for there's the kingdom of of heaven. Now, Jesus is telling the church that it's good when you're persecuted. It's good when you, your church is bombed in Sri Lanka. It's good when you're kidnapped. It's good when you're persecuted. It's good when you're mocked. It's good when you're lied about. It's good when you're reviled. And he continues like they didn't get the first one. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now the word revile is to criticize in an abusive manner, and he says lie. So when they criticize you, when they lie about you, when they try to cancel you, consider yourself good. Now what's ironic with Jesus' communication here is that he's not telling them how to live their best life now. He didn't end the the Beatitudes, these blessings, with saying, hey, and if you want to live your best life, just read Joel Osteen's book, and it'll tell you everything you need to do. Like, he goes the opposite direction. Like, Like, the Beatitudes crescendo, not in this best life now, but in this best life later, pinnacle. He actually tells them, it's not about living your best life now, it's about rewards in heaven that you will receive. See, the kingdom of heaven is a now and later concept that you get some some blessings now, but the ultimate reward of your faith is when you meet Jesus face to face in heaven. 
And the way Jesus ends his Beatitudes is bringing our focus back to these rewards in heaven. Bringing us back to the day when you'll see Jesus face to face and he'll place a crown upon your head as a reward for enduring trials, enduring temptation, enduring persecution, and living the life he's called you to live. And he finally says it, for when they so persecuted the prophets who were before you, when you find yourself being persecuted, when you find yourself being hated against, you find yourself in great company. All the great prophets before you were persecuted. Jesus was persecuted. The disciples were persecuted. Anybody who advances the kingdom of heaven is persecuted. So when you find yourself being persecuted, you realize you find yourself walking perfectly in God's will. But this is what I think is interesting. Persecution, as Jesus is crescendoing this thing, persecution is actually the fuel of revival. How many of you want to see revival in America? Raise your hand. How many of you want to see revival in the shoals? Raise your hand. How many of you want to see revival in yourself? Raise your hand. See, the fuel for revival is not better preaching. It's not a guest speaker coming in. It's not better worship services. The fuel for revival is not, you know, walking through the template or the order of service that another church had when they had revival. The fuel for revival is persecution. It's the fuel upon the flames when the Holy Spirit begins to blow upon the fires of revival. Persecution is the fuel that begins to stir it and rise it up. See, America, the reason that the church in America is so weak is because we've never had persecution. For until you have persecution, you really don't understand who you are. There was a pastor in Bulgaria in the 1980s, and he was preaching, and the Bulgarian government didn't want him preaching. They actually had another pastor in because in socialist countries, what they'll do is they won't stop the church. They just remove the true pastors out and put in the government pastors in. They put the government pastor in, but he kept on preaching. And so they arrested him for preaching the gospel, put him in jail for eight months, and here's what he said. He said, I didn't realize that there would be so many questions from the jailers and prisoners about the gospel when I was in prison. He's actually, there was more ministry done when I was in captivity than when I was a free man. Well, why is that? Because God uses persecution as a fuel for ministry. And here, here's three things I've learned. Persecution exposes the true believers from the crowd. And I think Jesus is saying, blessed are you when you're persecuted because it shows you're doing the right thing. That many times when you look at the church, you see a crowd, but when you look at the crowd, there's actually true believers, there's lukewarm believers, and there's just people that are the crowd. And the crowd are those that once Jesus says, you've got to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, they said, this is too hard for me, we're going to go somewhere else. Years ago, I was reading a book in my AG Bible college, and it was a story of this, I think it was in Singapore, this this Bible study was going on, and these armed guys come into the Bible study, and they tell everybody in the Bible study, they said, listen, this is your last chance. If you want to live, you can leave now. And a couple of people got up and left, and they said again, they said, listen, this is your chance. You can recant your faith now and leave and live, but if you stay and you say you're going to follow Jesus, we're going to kill you. And a couple more people got out, and there's only a handful of people left, and these soldiers sit down put the rifles down, and they said, well, now we can have a real Bible study. <laughs> See, you really don't know who the church is until it becomes going against the grain to follow Jesus. But two, it purifies the faith and heart of 
believers. See, persecution purifies. It removes all the lukewarmness out of you and makes you choose one way or the other. And it purifies your faith and strengthens your faith. But it also multiplies the mission and the believers that every time persecution has come against the church, the church has grown. Every time. The New Testament church, they would have stayed in Jerusalem except for persecution drove them out. When persecution drove them out, the church multiplied all throughout Asia, all throughout Europe, and now all over the world. The church in Iran under intense persecution is multiplying and is the fastest growing church in the world. The Chinese church, which is underground under intense persecution, is multiplying and growing at incredible rates. The North Korean church, where it's illegal, there is no official church, is multiplying. Why? Persecution fuels the church. It, it fuels it over and over again. It fuels the church. And here's the truth. When Jesus says, blessed are you when you're persecuted, here's the truth. Haters are going to hate. I guess telling RJ, I, I drop. See, I leave these Easter egg. If you don't know the Easter egg, Easter egg is a little quote or something that you have to go find and discover. Last week, I gave you an ice cube Easter egg. Y'all didn't even catch it. Oh, was it, Pastor? It was check yourself before you wreck yourself. That's ice cube, the prophet ice cube from back in 93. This was a 50 cent Easter egg. Haters are going to hate. Like, you can't escape life. Haters are going to hate. The world is going to persecute. You can't escape it. Well, why is that, Pastor? Well, here's the reality. The gospel is offensive. Look at your neighbor and say it's offensive. Do you realize the gospel doesn't tell you you're perfect just the way you are? You know, you can choose to live your life however you want to, and, and you'll be just great. Now, the Bible says you are not good enough on your own. The Bible tells you, you cannot please God by yourself. The gospel tells you, you are not perfect the way you are. The gospel says the world is going to hell in a handbasket. The gospel says the kingdoms of the world are perishing and passing away. The gospel is innately offensive. And so when you preach the true gospel, you're telling people that the kingdom they're aligned with is going the wrong direction. There's a new king and a true kingdom. And if you bridge yourself and align yourself with that, you'll have eternal, everlasting life. That is an offense to an entire world and population who's been told they're good just the way they are. That's why you're starting to see these bubbles of persecution rise up in America. It's because we've raised an entire generation of Gen Zs, millennials, whatever the generation thing is now, that we've told them, you're perfect just the way you are. They say, well, okay, well, I, I want to be transgender. And you say, well, you're maybe not. And then now there's this confusion in the middle between, okay, are you good enough or are you not? And the gospel says, no, you're only perfect when you're in Jesus. You're not perfect when you're in your feelings. You're not perfect when you're on your generational curses. You're not perfect when you choose to live your life. You're only perfect when you're under the blood of Jesus. See, persecution is nothing more than two never reconcilable value systems clash. You have the kingdom of heaven and its values, its promises, its reign clashing with the values of the world, 
It is a kingdom war, and we are stuck in the middle of it. That's why it amazes me, people, this week. I saw, I saw pastors, I saw people quoting all this stuff about the Disney Channel or the Disney Company Corporation, kind of their, their pro-gay agenda, their pro-sexual agenda. It doesn't even matter if it's a pro-gay agenda to me. The sexualization of children is wrong regardless of what sexual aisle you're on. And it's amazing to me that people, people are amazed that Disney would do that. Disney is not a Christian kingdom corporation. They are a corporation of kingdom of the world values. Their values are money, greed, and power, and entertainment. Those values will never coincide with the kingdom, which is self-denial, not self-gratification. It's selflessness, not selfishness. It's eternal life, not your best life. They'll never coincide together. And so until you realize that the world is clashing between these kingdom values, you're never going to understand persecution. You're never going to understand why is this going on. Because here's what Jesus said. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. He said, don't be surprised. Why are you surprised that when you stand here in the gospel, in the kingdom, that the world hates you? You're on the other side of the battle lines. Don't be surprised. Then he said it this way. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. That is key. If you're not being persecuted, there's probably a problem with your faith. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me, what? Without a cause. Here's the question. If the world hated Jesus, who is the epitome and the fullness and the manifestation of perfect, unconditional love, there is nothing that you can do to make the world love you. Nothing. Could you imagine Jesus, the, one who, the woman was caught in the act of adultery. They throw her down. He doesn't cast a stone and says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That type of love, they hated that. How in the world could you hate that type of love? Here's the answer. Because that type of love exposes fake love. And Jesus says, I've come, I've done all these amazing works, I've done all these miracles, all in the name of love and holiness, and the world still hated me. Why? Because when the authentic comes, it proves that which is fake. And when you begin walking in the love of Jesus, walking in the grace of Jesus, it exposes the broken structures and systems of fake and false love in the world. And so if Jesus was hated, you better believe that you're going to be hated as well. 
If they persecuted Jesus, you best believe they're going to persecute you as well. If they didn't like the disciples, they're probably not going to like you. And this is not a new phenomenon. This has been going on since Jesus was here. Why? When the kingdom advances, you best believe somebody's going to push back. The enemy's not going to give up territory just because you want it. He always fights back. I remember when I first moved here to Alabama, an older gentleman came to me and said, are you going to preach against those gays? And I said, no. One, that's very offensive to me, first of all. Second of all, why would I do it? He said, well, so you got to understand, he went off. He's like, see, there's this whole agenda, and it's political, and it's this. I said, look, my job is not to preach against people. My job is to preach against sin and preach for the kingdom of heaven. And I said, here, he said, well, it's different. He said, it's political. They're going to bring two gay people down to the front and have them join the church, and da-da-da-da. I said, we have bylaws for that. We have this for that. We have all this. I said, you know what the problem is? Here's the problem. The church, instead of advancing the gospel, started fighting political battles in the 1940s, 60s, and 70s. And in doing so, you started fighting people and fighting homosexuals and condemning homosexuals rather than advancing the kingdom of the gospel into the homosexual community. In doing so, you lost clout. Now that community has grown stronger. Now they're beginning to fight back. Anybody you push into a corner will fight back at some point. And since Jesus was here, he's been pushing back the darkness, pushing back the darkness. The church for 2,000 years has been his vessel of pushing back the darkness. And before Jesus comes, when you read Revelation, no matter if you're amillennial, premillennial, pre-trib, whatever your eschatology may be, what happens is as you push back the darkness right before Jesus comes, the enemy begins to push the darkness as hard as he can back towards the light. And the Bible calls that persecution. That haters are going to hate. There is no escaping it. There is no getting around it. But here's the reason why. Persecution in the international church is real. Like I, Years ago, I was in Nashville at Every Nation, which is Rice Brooks, and it's a great church movement that I have some friendships with. And I was walking through their offices, and there was a pastor named Mahmoud, Mahmoud, and he was on a Skype call. So he stood up, he introduced himself, he's from Iran, and he told me, I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm doing discipleship. This is before COVID, all discipleship. He was reaching into Iran. He was in Iran as a pastor before 9-11 happened. He's in Iran as a pastor. He got arrested for preaching the gospel. He was in prison. He had three days, he was about to be beheaded. Beheaded, not canceled, beheaded. Somehow supernaturally, God changed up the paperwork in Iran, and he got out on bail the day before he got beheaded. And some friends got him out of Iran into Jordan, into somewhere else. The goal was to get him into America, but 9-11 happened, and his name was Mahmoud Muhammad. If your last name was Muhammad on September 12, 2001, you were not getting into America. So he's in Australia, then Canada, now he's in America, and what he's doing is he'll go to Jordan a couple of times a year, and pastors and believers will come out of Iran into Jordan. He mentors them, he pastors them, he trains them, he equips them, and they're going back in to Iran to plant churches. 
Many of them are losing their life. Many of them are losing their families because in Islam, if you choose to get away from Islam and Muhammad, you lose the family. In the international church, persecution is a loss of family and life. It means there is a price to be paid. Great resource, great movie called Sheep Among Wolves, um, which some friends of ours, the guy who narrates the movie I've actually met with named M., it's a whole story of the underground church in Iran, how the church is growing and multiplying in incredible ways. It is predominantly led by women in a culture that doesn't let women do anything. God is supernaturally revealing Jesus to people through dreams and visions, through quoting scripture, never seeing the Bible, never hearing the Bible, but he's downloading the book of John to people supernaturally. To see them multiply and grow. And in Iran, they're very pro-Israel as the church. And the whole movie is this incredible, incredible documentary of just what persecution does to bless God's people. It's on YouTube. You can go check it out. But there's a story in there where there's one woman's telling the story of how she gets saved. And then she tells the story. She said, in our culture, as a believer, I know when I leave the house that day, maybe the last time I see my husband or my kids, and she said, we make a commitment as the women leaders of this church in Iran, we make a commitment every day when we leave this house that we're okay if we never come back. Because if we get called as Christians, not only will they kill us, but the first they're going to rape us. They're going to rape us and kill us. And we've made a decision that we're willing to sacrifice our bodies for the advancement of God's kingdom. That is persecution. In America, persecution is all about the loss of friends and comforts. That is still another form of persecution. I will tell you, I believe that is coming. The loss of family and the loss of life is coming to America. You cannot see it. It's coming. You can see it a mile away. The persecution that's in the international church is coming to the shores of America. Right now, though, it's if you truly believe Jesus, your friends will say, you're, you're a little too radical for me. Like, like, you believe in praying in tongues? Like, you believe in this? Like, yours is a little too radical, and they'll pull back. When in reality, if you believe in praying in tongues, you just believe the Bible. But let me tell you that if you're a believer and you actually read the Bible and believe the Bible, you are radical to most of the American church. It will cause you loss of family, loss of friends, but also comforts. What we're seeing right now is the whole political agenda is trying to persecute the church, not in lock you in prison, just take away some of your comforts. And here's what we've learned, even during the COVID shutdown, is that if you really want to stir up an American believer, all you have to do is take away a couple of their comforts. Why is that? We worship our comforts more than we worship the king. And when you take away our comforts, we feel like we've lost our kingdom. And I will tell you, your freedoms in America and your comforts as an American are completely different than your freedoms and your comforts in the kingdom of heaven. But the world is trying to take away the political stuff to try to get you to give up on the rest. Because here's the reality. Haters are going to hate, but you need to make sure they're hating you for the right reasons. Listen, they're going to hate you. Just make sure they hate you for all the right reasons. Here's what Jesus said. He said, blessed are you when you're persecuted for what? Righteousness sake. He didn't say blessed are those who are persecuted for their political beliefs. Blessed are those who are persecuted for, you know, doing what they want to do. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Then he goes on, and blessed are you when you, others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven. He's saying that only when you're hated for righteousness and on his account are you rewarded in heaven. What that means is make sure the world hates you because of your holiness, not because of your sinfulness. Make sure the world hates you because your kingdom alignment, not your political alignment. Make sure the world hates you because of your love, not because of your hate. Make sure the world hates you because of your unconditional grace, not because of your conditional judgment. Make sure the world hates you because you look like Jesus, not because you look like your political leaders. And if we are all honest, what many of us call persecution is not really persecution. It's just we're jerks. We're jerks on social media. We're jerks in real life. And as soon as somebody voices something back, oh, you're persecuting me. Like, like I know pastors, I, I will not mention by name. They will talk about how they're persecuted every day on social media, all this stuff. Now, two problems. One, they've built their entire ministry off social media platforms. And I will tell you, what you build on social media will also destroy you on social media. Two, well, they're just persecuting. I'm preaching the gospel. I'm preaching righteousness. No, no, no. You're preaching politics, and you're preaching jerkiness and being judged. I can't even think of it. Just a jerk. You're a jerk. I know these people. Like you cheated on your wife with the assistant. You talked to your wife like a dog, but now you're trying to preach holiness to the church because you're a political savvy. No, no, that's not righteousness sake. Righteousness is the blood of Jesus, the holiness of Jesus, looking like Jesus, acting like Jesus, talking like Jesus, loving like Jesus, and being like Jesus. It's not like being Joe Biden and not like being Donald Trump. It's like being like Jesus. So when you're being hated or persecuted, just step back and say, wow, are they, are they persecuting me because I look like Jesus? Or are they persecuting me because I'm just a jerk? Because the answer determines the reward you get. Father Pombo said this in 305 AD, 300 years, 1700 years ago, he said a time is coming when men will go mad. And when they see someone who is not mad, they will attack him and saying, you are mad, you are not like us. 1,700 years ago, meaning, have you paid attention? The world is crazy. They're mad about everything and anything. It doesn't matter what it is. They get mad. And if you're not mad, they're like, what's wrong with you? Why are you so mad? Like, I've given up on politics. I, I read politics. I read the news. I study. I've just given up on it. I think they're all crooked. I think they're all instruments of evil. I don't think there's very much hope left for any of the political junk. I've given up on it. And people say, why are you so mad about politics? I'm not. You're crazy. <laughs> like, you're crazy, and if I'm not as crazy as you are, you think I'm crazy. He said this 1,700 years ago. So they're going to hate you if you're at peace. If you're okay, me and Tommy Alexander talking about this last week. I don't know what my eschatology is in the world. I know Jesus coming back. I know the war in Ukraine looks like it's some prophetic symbolism of Jesus returning. I know the political division in America seems to be prophetic symbolism of Jesus returning. I know that it seems like there's rumors of wars, there's wars, there's division, there's all this junk. It doesn't look good. But you know where I'm at? Good. Like, my goal in life is to see Jesus, either when I die and see him or he returns and gets me first. 
And I'm at perfect peace. But when you're at peace in a world full of mad people, they start to think you're mad. And they'll begin to hate you like you are mad. But here's what you've got to know. Hate is going to hate, but let them hate. Because when they hate, they're making eternal deposits into your heavenly account. Jesus said when they persecute you, when they revile against you, when they lie about you, guess what? You're going to get your heavenly rewards. Meaning when they talk bad about you, let them talk. They're putting money in your heavenly cash app. When they're lying about you, how many of you had people lie about you? Raise your hand. Oh, only about six of you. Huh? When they lie about you, you can get mad and try to defend yourself and say, well, well that's not true. Or you can say, thank you. When they persecute you or they hate on you, or if they say, hey, you're too radical or you're this, thank you. Because every time they do it, they're just stocking up your rewards in heaven. See, we're so temporal, temporary-minded. We think that when things happen, people persecute you, they hate on you. You think you got to respond. No, 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 I don't need to respond because I'm thinking the long game. The more you persecute me, the more rewards I get in heaven. And I think one of the doctrines that have been missing from the church for too long is the doctrine of eternal rewards. Because it's the doctrine that one motivates you to live, live your holy life, to endure, to persevere, to endure persecution, to endure trials, to endure temptations, because you know there's rewards coming. And here's what Jesus said. When I get to it, it says, while salvation is a free gift of grace, there are heavenly rewards given for faithfulness in the Christian life and loss of rewards for unfaithfulness. See, people will say, well, no, I thought once you get saved, we just all get the same thing. No, 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 no. Once you get saved, you're saved. But there is a doctrine, and Jesus talks about it a lot in the book of Matthew, that there are rewards for how you build your life and how you live your life and the works you do or the works you don't do that you get rewarded for in heaven. It's an incredible doctrine. Now, we're in this whole you know, spiritual socialism. We think, no, no, once you get saved, you know, Hitler, if he got saved on his deathbed, and Billy Graham, it's the same thing. No, they go to the same place, but there's different rewards. And when you understand this doctrine, it'll help you be motivated to endure and persevere. Here's what uh, some people said in 2 Corinthians 5. It says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul is literally saying, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to get what we're due for how we lived after we received Jesus. So for those of you that just think you get saved and it's over, you're mistaken because here's the two judgments. There's two major judgments. One, the great white throne of judgment, which is for unbelievers. This is only for unbelievers. It's unbelievers will be judged to evaluate whether they're in Jesus or not and receive varying degrees of punishment. So they'll be punished not because of works they've done, but the only question that'll be asked at the great white throne of judgment, which is just for unbelievers, is what did you do with Jesus? Are you in him or are you not? Is your name in this book of life or is it not? And from that answer, the yes or no answer, God will separate the sheep from the goats and the goats are then rewarded their eternal punishment. Every unbeliever goes there. But believers 
go to the judgment seat of Christ where believers' works will be evaluated and receive varying degrees of reward. Paul calls it the Bema seat. The Bema is just a Greek word. If you ever watch the Olympics, it's where the judges sit. And so when he was talking about this in Rome, the Bema seat would be this, this kind of high lifted up platform where after the Olympics were over, they would award the medals, they would award the rewards for what each person deserved for how they ran their races. So Paul's used this imagery that we'll all stand before this Bema seat where God will reward us for how we run our race and run it well. You may say, well, I, I just thought we all just got to go to heaven. Well, yeah, we all get to go to heaven, but there's rewards that come with how you run your race here on earth. So the way I can explain it is like this. When I was in the military, I finished basic training with three ribbons. There's only three you could get. I got a graduate of basic training, honor graduate, and a marksman, which means absolutely nothing in real life, but then it felt really cool. There's only a few of us with that. So you could say, I got more rewards or more awards than everybody else because there's nobody else in my squadron that got all three of those awards. But you know what happened? We all graduated at the same time with the same graduation. We all got the same rank. We all got the same thing. I just had something that designated how I ran my race during basic training differently. I believe in heaven it's going to be the same way. Some of us are going to get awards that others don't get. We all get to graduate from this life into the next life, but there's some awards. I believe Billy Graham is going to be stocked up with awards. I believe some other people, martyrs, are going to have stocked up with awards. And so this Bema seat is kind of this thing of saying, here's yours. It's almost like the Olympics where they used to judge. Remember they used to judge with the, the numbers they flip up a nine or an eight or a seven, and the Russian judge was always like a two type thing. It's, it's almost like you get to see your life. Dr. R.T. Kendall says the greatest agony is going to be when you stand there before Jesus and they're showing you what to do for the life you've lived and you realize you could have done so much more. He said the agony is going to be other people seeing the opportunities you did not take advantage of as a believer. And the Bible gives us five of these eternal awards or rewards or crowns that the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about crowns as these awards, that when you get to heaven, one of the first things that's going to happen is you're going to enter in through the pearly gates. There's going to be this huge ceremony at this Bema seat with every believer ever standing around. Your name's going to be called, and you're going to receive a crown. Everyone receives one crown. Some of you receive two, three, four, five crowns. Then, when all that's over, then we'll actually cast our crowns at the feet of Jesus. Because in the presence of Jesus, this is not worth anything. And the first crown that it says we're awarded is the crown of righteousness, which is a crown for every believer who is saved through grace by faith in Jesus. That every single believer, you'll get there, you'll kneel down, and Jesus will place his crown on your head to say you are righteous, you are a child of the Most High God. It is your wedding garment of the King. But the second one, is the crown of victory, which is a crown awarded for self-discipline. And First Corinthians says, run your race and run it well so you receive this crown of boasting or this crown of victory. What that means is the crown for those of you that when you run your race with self-discipline, you discipline your body, you, you pursue holiness, you pursue righteousness, and it gives you this imperishable crown. And that language is very specific because 
in the Olympics in Rome, when they'd give them a crown, it was a crown of olive branches. It was a wreath. And through the heat of the day, that crown would perish. But he said, I'm going to give you an imperishable crown. Meaning, it doesn't matter what awards you get in this life. The moth will destroy it. Time will rust it. The weather will deteriorate it. But God's going to give you a crown when you endure that is imperishable forever. Three, the crown of rejoicing. It's a crown for those who advance the kingdom through soul winning. Meaning that God awards and recognizes those who get other people into the kingdom. This is when I think Billy Graham is going to be huge. Like there's people I know that soul winning oozes out of their soul. And I believe, you know, you've been term another jewel, another gem, another diamond in my crown. Like God is going to give you a crown. I believe a gem in every one for every single person you led to Jesus. And when you walk around heaven, people are going to see how hard you worked on earth to get them there. The crown of life is a crown for those who endure trials, testing, and persecution. I believe every martyr is going to have a special ceremony where he's going to give them this crown of life for those that laid their life down for the cause of the kingdom. And the last one is the crown of glory, which is the crown for those who lead God's church and feed the flock, the pastors, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, ministers, and every person carrying out the Great Commission. He says this to the elders, make sure you shepherd the flock well because you will receive a crown of glory when it's over. I believe our champions here at Chapel, those who serve to advance God's kingdom through this church, I believe those on our staff, the lay pastors, our elders, there'll be a crown of glory that God says, thank you so much for taking care of my bride. Thank you so much for cherishing her. Thank you so much for protecting her white gown. Thank you so much. And God says, here's a crown of glory. So yes, haters are going to hate. But when they hate, I just think about the crown I'm going to receive. Remember when I was four years old, I played baseball for the very first time. And I didn't know anything about trophies or awards. I remember at the end of that season, there was a little pavilion at the baseball park. Remember we went over there. Back then, you didn't have the cool jersey. The kids now have these jerseys like they're major league baseball players. We had hand-me-down white pants that they'd used for 20 years with stains on them and stirrups and a blank orange shirt with the numbers on the back. We're standing there. I remember seeing these little bitty trophies on this picnic table. I'd never seen a trophy before. Four years old. Like, I'd never seen a trophy before. I look at the trophies. They're all lined up on this table. And I see one that has my name on it. It says B-O-B-B-Y. I didn't know how to spell my last name. I just knew my first name. If there was another Bobby, it could have been his. But I knew how to spell Bobby. B-O-B-B-Y. I remember standing there anticipating just looking at this, thinking, that, that's mine. Like, that's my trophy. I remember one by one, they call out our names. They say, so-and-so, or, or Brandon, or Jake, or John. But they said, Bobby. And I walked in front of all my teammates, in front of all my family, and I walked up, and they handed me this little bitty trophy, my first trophy ever. Remember, I took that trophy, and I held it tight. Like, I was so proud of it. I still have that trophy. Like, I love that trophy. Why? It was somebody recognizing something I had accomplished. Do you realize when you get to heaven, there's this huge trophy ceremony with every believer who's ever lived on the face of the earth watching, and you're going to see a crown that has your name on it. 
you're going to see it. I don't know if they're stacked up. I don't know if they're lined up. I don't know what it's going to look like. But there's a crown that has your name on it. And you're going to sit there. But you're going to be so enamored that they're going to call your friends and your family. They're going to call them. They're going to get their awards. And you're going to celebrate with them. Man, thank you, thank you, thank you. But then all of a sudden, you're going to hear your name. Bobby, you're going to walk up and you're going to see Jesus. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the second time, I, I don't know. But you're going to see his eyes full of flames of fire. And you're going to see him holding your crown. And you're going to weep because everything at that moment is going to make perfect sense. The times people lied about you, the times people persecuted you, the times people hated you, the times people said things about you that you did not think were true, the times in life that were difficult, the trials you went through, the temptations you went through, the prayers you prayed, it's all going to make sense. And Jesus is going to take that crown and put it on your head, and all of heaven is going to celebrate and rejoice. And as the celebration begins to die down, you're going to look at Jesus, and you're going to begin to weep, and you're going to take your crown, and you're going to cast it at his feet. Because you're not there for a crown, you're not there for a trophy, you're not there for an award, you're there for Jesus. That's why Jesus said, blessed are you when they persecute you. Because your rewards are great in heaven. See, life is not just about getting saved and getting a ticket to heaven. It's about getting saved and preparing for heaven. And if people need to persecute me to get there, God bless them. If they need to hate on me, God bless them but I'm looking for my awards in heaven. I don't need the cheers of the crowd. I just want the cheers of Jesus. And my question is this. What rewards are you going to get in heaven? Or what rewards are you sacrificing right now because you're living your life the way you want to for now instead of in the light of eternity? You would bow your heads and just close your eyes just for one quick second. Blessed are they. We've all been hated against. We've all had people hate on us. You know what? God bless them. It is none of my business what anybody else says about me. The only thing that's my business is what God says about me. When they talk, they're making deposits into my eternal rewards, into my heavenly account. And I could save up money here on earth, but even Jesus said, don't stock up treasures on earth, stock up treasures in heaven. And right now, we just need to think through an eternal lens and an eternal mindset. So the question for you would be this one. Have you given your life to Jesus? Placed your trust in him? Walk in his righteousness and by faith, trust in him for your salvation? If the answer is no, today's the day you set yourself apart by repenting of one kingdom and turning and becoming part of another kingdom. And you get access to that kingdom now and for all of eternity. That's you. Maybe the Holy Spirit's been talking to you since you walked in this room. Maybe through worship he was talking to you. Maybe during the sermon he's been speaking to you. And maybe today's the day you start a new life today, a new beginning, a fresh start. It all begins with saying yes to Jesus. That's you. I'm not going to have you stand up. I'm not going to have you come forth. That's you. Just slip your hand up right where you are. Thank you. Anybody else? 
Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you that you are an eternal God. We thank you that you give us rewards here on earth for faithfulness, but also in heaven. Father, I pray right there, Father, for those who are losing comforts and those who are losing relationships over their faith, I pray right now you remind them that every time it happens, you're making deposits into their account. Father, we pray for the church at large, for the church in Iran, the church in North Korea, the church in China. Father, we just pray your hand of protection upon them. Father, we pray for the inspiration they're giving us, Father, to, to multiply and magnify and purify our faith. And Father, we just pray that you use them to increase and advance your kingdom here on earth. Father, all for your praise and your glory in Jesus' name.